but um, we're in 1 Timothy, and uh, there's a big story around 1 Timothy. Uh, the, the big story is that, uh, that about 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, after the birth of the church, the Apostle Paul finds himself in Ephesus. And this revival breaks out in Ephesus. And I mean, people are coming to Christ and the church is birthed in Ephesus. And it was a, a well-known city because it was a port city. And so it, had, uh, it was a large city, very wealthy, uh, had you know, beautiful architecture, uh, education system, all of these things going forward. It was a it was an important port city with roads that led out to different parts of the world. And uh, Paul comes and, and and the church is birthed in Ephesus. Incredible things happen. Some of the most powerful moments in his ministry. It was so powerful that Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years, uh, discipling people, uh, preaching the gospel watching people come to Christ, watching the church start to grow uh, in Ephesus. And then Paul left, and, and when he left, he left this young guy, Timothy. And, and he said, Timothy, you're, you're staying here. And don't let anybody look down on your, on your youth, but, but your job is, is to continue to proclaim the gospel, and your job is to hold up what really matters and, and what's really important. And so then Paul writes Timothy this, these two letters. Uh, and, and we've been talking about First Timothy, because uh, Paul is addressing a couple of things in the church. We've talked about it in the first chapter. There were some men who had come into the church, and they had they were leaders of the church, but they started to teach uh, things, not just the gospel, but they started to teach other myths and, and other things. They started to add other religions. They started to stray away from the centrality of, of the gospel and who Jesus was, and, and Paul calls them out in this letter. He even names two of them and says, if they don't repent, then you need to cast them out of the church because uh, what they're doing is so wrong. And, and then we went to uh, chapter two, remember, um, yeah, and we had the ladies with big hair and uh, dressing extravagantly and, and all of that's going on and Paul calls them out uh, and, and we, we looked at what that meant and what was going on and, and what we learned was that anything that takes away from the gospel, uh, anything that shrinks the gospel or diverts our attention from the gospel, Paul said, stay away from it. Um, avoid it. Anything that gets between us and who Christ is in our lives, Paul said, stay away from that. Avoid it. And he was calling out what the, those things were and, and challenging uh, the church in Ephesus to get their focus back on what really mattered. And then we get to chapter three, and, and chapter three sort of leads off with this whole idea of the qualifications to be an overseer or an elder uh, in the church. And so what Paul is saying is he says, look, the, these guys said they were leaders and they strayed away and they were teaching false things and they were not living according to the gospel and we've gotten out of control here and we've gotten off of the things that really matter. And so I wanna remind you what Christian leadership really looks like. And I want to remind you how we're really supposed to live. And so he talks about what it means to be an elder and what it means to, to be a deacon. And he lists those qualifications. And if you read those qualifications out of 1 Timothy 3, it's an exercise in humility. Because you read that and you think, how, how do you do this? How, how does somebody live? You know, the bar is really high. How, how do you live up to those standards? And that's precisely what Paul is looking for. Paul is looking for a little humility. Paul is wanting us to understand that our dependence is on Jesus. Our, our dependence is not on our ability. 
to live a certain lifestyle or to live a certain way or to match qualifications. But the qualifications come out of a life that's dependent on Christ and is focused on who Christ is. So I have a little confession to make this morning that as I was reading through chapter three of 1 Timothy, I felt like the Lord wanted us to talk about the church and who Jesus is. And we're not going to spend the time this morning on those qualifications. You can read those. They're pretty clear. They're pretty plain. But what we're going to talk about is our verses 14 to 16 that, that, are the, that are frame the theme of the whole letter of 1 Timothy. It's the linchpin. It's right in the middle of the book, and, and it's the place that Paul explains why he writes it, what is the major theme of the letter of 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at that, and there are two parts uh, of those verses this morning. There's The first part is he describes the church. He describes who we are. Uh, he describes what we're about, and then he reminds us of who Jesus is. So let's just take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 16. We're going to start here with verse 14. Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. I'm going to stop there. He's saying, I'm writing this to you. I hope to come to you soon. I hope to get to you soon. But if I'm delayed for whatever reason... I'm writing these things so you will know, and he lists three things that, that refer to the church, three things that define what the church is. Here they are. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So the first description of the church is that we are the household of God, that, that, that we are a picture to the world of, of what it means to be in God's family. Remember John 1, he said, whoever believed in him, whoever called upon his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, that he invited us into his household. And so for me, there are two parts, uh, there are two things about being in the household of God, being in the, the family of God. And, and I think Paul uses this description of household on purpose because they're, they're these two things. The first one is that we know that he's our father, that God is our father, and that God loves us as a father and he's merciful, and he's compassionate, and he's gracious. And, and all of those things, we know that he is a loving father. And, and that we know that we are heirs to everything that God has to offer as his children. And, and so that's our place as a church, as a community, as a people. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. We are heirs of the Father. We are heirs of the God of the universe. We're his children. We belong to him. Everything that goes with it, he says, belongs to you. You have that opportunity. Well, the second thing is when you're in the household of God, it's house rules, right? I don't know. If any of you ever said, as long as you're under my roof, <laughs> right? We used to have a rule in our house because uh, I used to feel like, you know what? Hair grows back, hair can be cut, hair's fine, what, have at it, whatever you want, but the piercings, uh, the tattoos, not under my roof. Not, not, you know, when you're out in your own house, you know, what, you know, do whatever, but not now. There's some house rules. Uh, and, and we had house rules that were really, that in, in our hearts, were designed to help our sons grow to be godly men 
That's why we had house rules. God has house rules. God uh, has uh, requirements. There are uh, requirements in his household that are designed to help us to grow into godly people. And so when we're in the household of God, we know that we have all the rights, all the privileges of being God's children, but we also know that we live under God's rule. We live under house rules, that we are obedient to him, that we're under his roof, that we belong to him. And so he says, you're the household of God. The second thing that he says is that as the church, we are the dwelling place of God. He says the church of the living God, that we are the church, the church, the ecclesia, it's the called out ones. We are the ones that have been called out uh, to be his church. Uh, You know, we have folks sometimes feel like, you know what, you don't have to be a, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Ah, You know what, that's really true. Uh, You don't don't have to eat vegetables to be alive either. You're just not going to be healthy, Right? That, that God, is or, God has organized this, God has ordained this, that, that we gather together for mutual support, for encouragement. He says the Spirit of God is present with us, and he says the church is a living, breathing part of his body. That Christ is the head of the church, and we're the body of the church, and other places he calls us the bride. is all these metaphors, but what he wants us to understand is that it matters, that the living God lives in us. He dwells in us. This is why in 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. For we are the temple of the living God. And, and, and Paul's just taking that from the Old Testament. For example, Ezekiel 27.37 says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And what he says now, with through Christ, that means God... God no longer needs a temple, but we're his temple. He lives in us. And God lives in us individually, but there's, there's a, that God lives in us corporately as well. He, when we come together, we are a picture of the living God. We are a picture of Christ, that his presence dwells in us. The, the word dwells, a great, it's a great Bible word, but simply means that God lives in us, that his spirit lives in us, that, that um, more literally that he has made a permanent, taken permanent residence in our lives. He dwells in us. And so the church, the church is a living, breathing picture of God, the church of the living God. Then the third thing that he says, um, he talks about here, is the third significant aspect of the church that comes out of this verse. He says, you were a pillar and a buttress. What he's saying is that we're the guardians of God's truth. We're the guardians of of God's word. And this idea of a pillar, um, a pillar are the support pillars uh, of a a big building. The buttress is the foundation uh, of the building, that, that you have these two parts that you've got. You build a foundation that holds everything together, that keeps everything level, that sort of makes everything fit. And then you have the pillars that are the support beams, the support structure that, that holds that building in place. And here's what, and what, what uh, Paul is trying to help the church understand is that we become that, that we become the pillars and the buttress of the truth that it's our responsibility, it's our job to stand for the truth, to live out the truth. 
Now, where we get mixed up sometimes is that we, 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 we think there's a lot of extra things that belong to the truth, and so uh, we, we sort of separate with people who, who are followers of Jesus because we think there's a, a truth about how you worship, or we think there's a truth about how you pray, or we think there's a truth about some other part of the Bible, and, and here's what Jesus is really focusing on with the church in Ephesus, and he, he's focusing on the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the gospel. Paul's saying that's what matters the most. And you are the pillars and you are the foundation that your responsibility is to stay focused on the truth. Your responsibility is to continue to communicate the truth. Your responsibility is to live in the truth because you're my church. You are the, you are the dwelling place of the living God. You're heirs to the kingdom. You're children of God. You belong to his household. And, and as, as members of his household, what he's calling us to do is to have the foundation of our life built on the gospel, who Jesus is. And the reality that without Christ, that we're completely lost, uh, that we're sinners, that Christ died on a cross for us, that he rose again, and it's through Jesus that we have life, and that's the truth that we build our lives on, and that's the truth that we hold up, that's the truth that the church is built on. And Paul says, I don't want you to stray from that truth. I don't want you to add anything to that truth. I want you to focus your life. I want you to give yourselves to that truth. That's the foundation. That's what we hold up. That's what really matters in our lives. The truth of who Jesus is. And then Paul goes on to say in verse, uh, in verse 16, he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. The word godliness is one of Paul's favorite words in, the, in this book of 1 Timothy. He uses it nine times. And this idea of godliness simply means that we live a God-centered life. We live a life that's centered on the gospel of who Christ is. We live a, a life that's centered on who God is, that God is the center of our life, that God directs us, that God guides us, that who he is matters more than anything else in our lives. It's a God-centered life. And the mystery is sort of an interesting thing because, the, you know, for a couple of thousand years, the, the, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. And, and they had little hints about how the Messiah would come and they, they had prophecies about how the Messiah would come, but they really didn't understand how the Messiah was going to come and they didn't understand who he was going to be. And, and they really had sort of adopted this idea that when the Messiah came, he was going to be just for them and them alone. He was going to establish a kingdom and they were going to reign with him and everything was going to be good again. And then God revealed the mystery that he would come as a baby born in a manger and that he would come to give his life as a ransom for them, yes, but for the whole world. That he was going to be born in a Jewish home. He was going to be born in a Jewish community to Jewish parents, but he was the savior of the world. And now the mystery is revealed that God has come in the flesh. He's come in the form of Jesus Christ, but he hasn't just come for one little group of people, but he's come for the whole world. That God loved the whole world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have life, have eternal life. That's what God wants for us. That's what God is saying to us. That's what God wants us to understand. That was the mystery that was revealed through Jesus. Well, now he talks about, uh, he goes on to talk about, uh, he actually shares a hymn with us. 
the last uh, verse of, uh, uh, in the th- third chapter is an ancient hymn. And this ancient hymn gives us six pictures of who Jesus is. Remember, now, Paul has just explained to us again who the church is. The, the church is the, the household of God, that we are the, we are the tabernacle, we are uh, a living example uh, of God, uh, that we are living and breathing picture of who Christ is in the world, and that we have the foundation and the pillars of the truth of the gospel, and we hold those things up. And what is the cornerstone? What is the foundation of the gospel? Now Paul goes on to say the foundation is Jesus Christ, who Christ is. And he's going to tell us six things about Jesus, six things that he really wants us to understand, six things that he wants us to to build our life on. And the very first thing that he says is that he was manifested in the flesh. Let me just read this verse to you. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, I don't know how this goes to music exactly, but I do know it was was used as an ancient hymn, and it was repeated regularly in the early church. And the very first thing that he says is that he was manifested in the flesh, that the God of the universe became flesh. And the first chapter, John says, and he lived among us. And Eugene Peterson translated that, and God moved into our neighborhood. He became flesh, and he moved into our neighborhood, and he lived among us, and he showed us how to live, and he showed us what it meant to die for him, and he gave us the resurrection. And God loves us so much that he came in person in the flesh, that he showed himself. It's, we call it the incarnation, but it's the fleshing out of the gospel. It's who Jesus is. He came in the flesh. The second thing that Paul wants us to understand he says, vindicated by the Spirit. And this, this idea of vindication just simply means that he demonstrated who he was through his Spirit. So we have uh, Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased that the Spirit of God vindicated Jesus. The Spirit of God said, this is who he is. This is the Son of God. Pay attention to him. In uh, Romans 1, 4, it says this, and, and, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in Romans eight eleven it says this, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, lives in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. That he was was manifested. He was shown to us in the flesh. God came and lived among us. 
And then that was shown to us by his spirit. The third thing that he wants us to understand uh, about Jesus is that he was seen by angels. And there's some spectacular verses, there's some spectacular passages uh, about this. The very first one that we look at is if you go to Luke and you see that that on the night that Christ was born, the shepherds were tending their flocks and, and, and an angel of the Lord appeared. Uh, and, and, he, and he said, do not be afraid for I bring you good news. And then we know that this heavenly host came and declared uh, the birth of the Christ and, and sent the shepherds to Bethlehem to see the Lord. And then if we go, to the re- to, we go to the day of the resurrection, that we know there were angels around the tomb. There were angels everywhere giving evidence uh, to the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally in Acts, the first chapter, when Jesus was ascending to heaven, it said that there were two men in shining, bright, shining robes saying, why are you standing here? He's not here anymore. Go. Do what he asked you to do. Obey what Jesus told you to do. And so we see that these things, that he was seen by the angels. Here's Here's what Paul wants us to understand. That Jesus Christ is God. He didn't give up being God, but he came in the flesh. He was both God and man, and he was validated by the Holy Spirit. He was seen by angels, but he was also first and foremost, before anything else, he was seen by us. God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, he was seen by us. He was validated by the Holy Spirit. He was seen by angels. The fourth thing he says is that the good news, the gospel was proclaimed among the nations, that Jesus Christ was proclaimed among the nations. And we know that's true from the very beginning. Jesus even commanded us. He gave us the great commission that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that the gospel of who Jesus is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is to go to the whole world. And that was being proclaimed then, and it's being proclaimed today. One of the great things is that when Christ lives in your life, when you recognize that the the living God lives in you, there's something about that. There's something so powerful, so significant, so important to you that you want to tell somebody. And the gospel goes forth. Even to places like Ephesus. Even to places that had one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Artemis. The gospel was proclaimed. The gospel went forth, and the gospel still goes forth today. The fifth thing that he says is that not only did the, was the gospel proclaimed among the nations, but believed on in the world. And we see that Christ is, being, is believed in the world. Now, here's one of the great things is that while we're here this morning, the idea that we're worshiping on a Sunday morning, that all over the world, People are lifting up the name of Jesus. People are coming together to worship him. That he's being worshiped all over the world. One of the realities is that the center of Christianity may not be in the West anymore. That that the church is growing much faster in places like China and Asia and Africa than it is here. But the truth is, the reality is that all over the world, People are worshiping Christ everywhere you can imagine in every tongue that you can imagine in every way that you can imagine. People are worshiping Christ. They're lifting him up. The gospel has been proclaimed and people are worshiping him. They believe in him. 
you know, the final thing, the sixth thing that he talks about is that he was taken up in glory. That Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. And glory is often an adjective that's used for heaven, but what it really means is that Jesus was, has been, uh, is back in the presence of the Father. And the scripture talks a lot about the fact that he was ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. One of my favorite passages in, in the whole Bible, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but verses 9 through 11 say that therefore God has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted Jesus and placed his name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, that he is in the highest place, that he is ascended to glory. So we have this whole picture of who Jesus is, this whole picture of the gospel from the fact that Jesus came in the flesh to live among us and that he was seen uh, by, by, he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, that, that his word and the gospel was proclaimed and that he is worshiped in all of the nations and that he is taken up into glory. We have this picture of how significant Jesus is, the supremacy of Christ. And isn't it amazing that when we come together on Sunday mornings, we are the church. We're the assembly of the called out ones. We're the, the, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We belong to him and we worship the Christ who is supreme above all who lives in us. This one that we just gave those six qualifications, those six characteristics of, dwells in us. He's made residence in our lives. That should change everything, shouldn't it? It should change everything about our lives because that's who Jesus is. And here's what Paul wants us to understand this morning. That before we jump into the qualifications, because the qualifications are great and they're important and we should know what they are, but here's, here's what we do we sort of take the qualifications and we, we kind of try to do those better than somebody else. We, we kind of try to be a better Christian. We try to do, a, we try to act better than somebody else. I'm gonna take those qualifications. I'm gonna start checking off the list and, and, and it really doesn't becomes about, I wanna be seen as somebody who does those things. I wanna be some, seen as somebody who, who kind of lives that way and, and it doesn't really matter if I'm really living that way in my heart. What really matters is how I'm seen and, and that's why I felt like we don't wanna just focus on the qualifications as important as they are but what we want to focus on is really who we are as a church and who Jesus is and that what really matters in our lives this morning is that the living Christ dwells in us. So here's the deal. You can go back and read all the qualifications to be an elder or deacon, and now you can know why. Why are they important? Why do we live this way? We live this way because we're the church, and we live this way because Christ dwells in us. I'm a big fan of David McCullough. David McCullough is a, is a historian, he's a writer. I love all of his books, but he wrote a, a really interesting book uh, about the Brooklyn Bridge and it's called The Great Bridge. And he tells this fascinating story uh, about the Brooklyn Bridge and how difficult it was to build and all the obstacles. They, this, this, they started building the Brooklyn Bridge. It goes between Manhattan and Brooklyn uh, in the late 1860s. It took them 15 years to finish this bridge. Lives were lost. I mean, even the, even the architect, even the engineer that started the bridge, um, he 
lost his life in the process. His son took over. His son became ill through the process. His wife took over. Uh, they finally finished the bridge after, after 15 years of construction. Here's a picture of it. Today, 135 years after they started building this bridge, there are 150,000 vehicles and pedestrians a day that cross the Brooklyn Bridge after all these years. It's, it's a marvel of engineering, but there's a secret to the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and it really comes out in 1872, one of the engineers of the project wrote an article for the newspaper. And he says this, to such of the general public as might imagine that no work had been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence. So he's saying, uh, you, you're, you're wondering what we've been doing because you don't see anything uh, happening. I would simply remark that the amount of masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during the past winter underwater is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the waterline. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that people were starting to grumble. People were saying, what are they doing? We don't see anything happening. We've got a tower on one side that's been built, but we don't see anything going on on the other side. These guys are wasting our money and they're wasting our time. And he writes this article to say, here's what matters. That it takes the same amount of masonry, the same amount of concrete and steel and engineering to create the foundation, to build the foundation under the water that nobody's ever going to see. It takes the same amount to build the tower above the water that everybody does see. And you see, if we take the qualifications to be an elder and, and we just try to make that what everybody sees without understanding what our foundation is and without really dealing with what's under the water in our lives, then we're going to miss the whole point that Paul has for us. Because what really matters is what's going on on the inside of your heart. What really matters is what's the foundation that is being built in your life and how does that come out? How does that show in what everybody can see? It's not about making that look good. It's about what's happening underneath all of that. What's the foundation? What's below the waterline in your life? And Paul wants us to understand it's knowing who we are as a church and it's being reminded who Jesus is, that before anything else, it's Christ. It's him glorified. It's him dying for our sins. It's the resurrection. It's him giving us eternal life. And we belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the reminder of who we are as a church, Lord. That we are the dwelling place of the living God, that when we come together and praise and when we come together and worship, Lord, that you are present. And Lord, your spirit gives power to our praise. Lord, we thank you that you, that you came. And we give you praise and thanks this morning because you loved us so much that you came, that you became a man, that you humbled himself, yourself, you became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Lord, as we look at our lives this morning, we, want, we don't want it to be just about the show, but we want it to be about what you're doing, what's under the waterline, what really matters in our lives. What's the foundation that's being built that would honor and glorify you? So Lord, we give you praise, we give you thanks, we give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen.
You know, uh, here's an opportunity for us. I always use that word. It seems nicer than saying, here's a challenge. Here's something you have to do. I don't know. But here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to think about this. What are the qualifications of an elder? What are, what are, what are the qualifications to be a leader uh, in the church? And take a, take a look at that, but use them as a little bit of an inventory in your life. And if you're like me, you'll kind of go, okay, I'm in trouble. When you look at those things, you realize how much you need Christ. And remind yourself that here, here's what matters. What matters is what we're building under the waterline. What matters is what God is doing in our lives that nobody will ever see. What matters is the time that we spend with him. That the, the time that we spend in his word, the time that we spend in prayer, the time that we spend coming together uh, in worship as the church. And then God is going to grow those things in our lives. Yeah, we want to be intentional and we want to see uh, those things happen in our lives, but we want to see them because of the foundation that Christ is building in our lives. So you could do this a couple of ways. You could use those verses or the qualifications as a, a bit of an inventory. You could just simply ask the Lord, Lord, what's going on? under the waterline in my life and take a good, honest look. Where's your foundation? Where's your hope? Who is Christ in your life today? I love you guys. I hope you have a great, great day. God bless.